0: once again, Captain Hindsight comes to this house and attacks the government for doing exactly what he urged us to do 18 months ago. Uh, Lots of words, lots of bluster, no answers. Uh, uh, Word of warning, word of warning, Prime Minister, that's not going to work with the police. (laughs) Market rate, £3,000 a day, were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions just once. Just once it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer.
1: Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice.
0: The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matcha, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper and with me this week, as per usual, we have our Political Editor Alistair Grant, our Westminster Correspondent Alexander Brown and our Political Correspondent Hannah Brown. I hope we're all doing well. Alex, have you survived the vote of no confidence like Boris? Are you... Here and happy and proud.
2: I don't know if I got the support of my colleagues, but I think it's glad I'm glad that we drew a line under the issue. I think the tweets were in poor taste, but I'm I stand by them, and now it's about moving on delivering with columns that only me and my mum reads.
0: <laughs> Let's chat about in the, in in serious tones about the vote no confidence. It was a big moment in politics this week. It was the big moment in politics this week. Alex,
2: take us through what happened in the fallout since. So, I mean, the most, <laughs> the most significant thing is it completely ruined my day off. I mean, the whole day I felt like I'd clerks. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Um, I'd even planned a nap. I'd, I'd lined it up in my, in my diary. It was like two o'clock, big lunch, have a sleep, catch up. Uh, that is not what happened. Instead, uh, I spent the day uh, bothering MPs, trying to find out how they were voting. They would ignore or, you know, say we couldn't report it and the Prime Minister survived. He got um, 211 votes to 148. It was uh, less a lesser resounding victory and more like inching over the line. 41% of his party don't think he's good enough. And if he only got 211 votes, when 180, I think, of his MPs are on the payroll as uh, junior ministers, it's really embarrassing. And I think it's so, so damaging. The logic among some, uh, you know, rebel... Among those close to, close to the Prime Minister was, you know, this is good, he's won, we can draw a line under it now. And you know they want to draw a line under it because every single MP that's sent out to bat says, draw a line under it. I think the Prime Minister said it three times. I think um, one of the others said it three or four times. So oh, he said it three or four times. It's, it's like when um, uh, Dominic Cummings got caught uh, and they said, and then he explained it in a tweet that was actually just nonsense. And they said, the matter is closed. And all the ministers are tweeting, the matter is closed. It is a deeply embarrassing time for the Conservative Party, and a lack of talent to replace him is not enough of a reason to keep him. All of the polling shows that he is unpopular. All of the polling shows they're going to lose Wakefield. They might even lose uh, the Neil Parish by-election, especially if he runs as an independent, uh, campaigning on his tractor. I I don't know what they're doing. I I, I I, know we've talked so much about Boris Johnson on this podcast, and I know that it seems, and especially looking at our comment section, you know, you talk about like a no confidence vote like, and the comments go, "Why are you talking about? What's happening with Sturgeon, eh? And i like, was, well, that's because I'm not, I'm the Westminster correspondent. It's um, elsewhere on the site. Uh, but I, <laughs> it really does feel like this is the end. And I think, you know, you'd speak to MPs who supported him publicly and privately, they go, this is it. It's probably got less than a year. Uh, I no longer have any real doubt about it. This is probably the end of uh, Boris Johnson. It's just a matter of when.
0: It was that it was the 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 scale of his victory uh, it, you know in if, if you could put it in that words in the sense that you know I think there was briefings throughout the day that the rebels would have been happy with three figures you know getting over a hundred was it expected the the fact that they they got all the way up to 148 and you know that's technically a a number that's worse than Margaret Thatcher in in back in the day or albeit under different rules, it's, when there was a leadership challenge, it's also
2: worse than Theresa May. Um, and if you don't ex- exist online, you probably might not remember that um, Jacob Rees-Mogg said when Theresa May won her vote. Uh, but I think she had 113 rebels. That you know, it's she might have won, but she doesn't retain the support at the party or the backbenchers, and so she should obviously go and resign. And when he was asked about this after the prime minister won, he went, "Oh, you know, different. It was a different time. Uh, the weather was. It was the, the season." Uh, except in, in quite an even posher voice th- than mine, so it there isn't. Re- it was a re- it was a shock. I mean, I I thought I I, I was messing people with my you know, my the, the betting game. I think I said it would be one hundred and thirty-five, so I wasn't far off. Um, but. It was it's really badly disorganized. It through the day, like allies prime minister going, well there's doesn't we've not been like no one's called us yet. The whips have <laughs> not been talking to us. It was so disorganized. And I can see from your face, you're so shocked that a Boris Johnson operation could be disorganized. So it's such a details man. It was it was a real surprise. And I think that's the case of it. Like you should back the Prime Minister if you want to back the party. Like party loyalty should is supposed to come above everything else. And it didn't. He is so bad that even people who supported him weren't tweeting about it. I think you know uh, one of my uh, colleagues in the lobby, uh, John Stevens, deputy political editor of the Mail, was tweeting through the day every MP who'd shared support in a thread. I think it got to 150 odd, which means that you know 50 60 MPs, not that Twitter is everything, but didn't want to share publicly. They supported him, and a lot of those who had supported him were, were writing articles for local newspapers, going, "I think it's best we get on," and I. But strictly between me and the ballot box, they didn't want to say because they people are now embarrassed, if not ashamed, to publicly support the Prime Minister.
0: What was the situation in Scotland? Obviously, Douglas Ross, W-turned, O-turned, depending on you know what you prefer as a W-turn on his position, said he was going to vote against the Prime Minister. What? Where does that leave him? Where does that leave the Scottish Conservatives?
2: So, I mean, I think four of six Scottish Tories voted against him. Uh, John Lamont, Dave Mundell, Andrew Bowie and Douglas Ross. I have spoken to ministers who have said before that they think, I. Well, after Douglas, when he first said that the Prime Minister should go, that either Douglas would go or the Prime Minister would. And they were a lot more with the belief it would be Douglas because it was unsustainable. And we are now in a situation where Labour are writing letters and going, how can you support the Prime Minister in the next election? Which is a valid point. But the Scottish part, the Scottish Conservatives always tried to separate themselves from the Prime Minister because it's literally toxic in Scotland. And I... And I'm probably slightly different uh, from the norm on this. I actually think Douglas probably did, if not politically, the most sensible thing. I think he tried to do the right thing. I think that, you know, he handed him the letter initially, which is probably fair enough when Partygate first emerged. And then, because it looked like the Prime Minister would go because you would think other people would do the right thing because he has we can see that he's partied when he said he hadn't. So forgetting getting inquiries or whatever, he was at events. We know that. And he probably thought he'd go. He didn't. And then his position becomes unstable, and it become unsustainable. And people keep asking about it. Ukraine is a, you know, a great—I don't want to say an excuse, but it's a reason for him to support the prime minister again and like buy and the both times and some separation. So I can I completely get it politically. I don't know what else he was supposed to do. If he'd have just left the letter in, he would keep getting asked about it every week. And so I know it's a bit embarrassing, and it, the U turns and. But I think in politics, you are supposed to be able to change your mind. You are supposed to be adapting to scenarios. And I think living in such a binary, oh, you thought he should go, and then you were willing to compromise because you thought that this issue trumped that. I think that's a good thing. And I think that the reaction to him has been, I, th- I think, quite unfair. Because normally we think the Conservatives deal, you know, in, in blind support, which, you know, is usually the response from the to go, oh, you all support him, you will support him. Well, he didn't, and he adapted to the, to the, um, to the scenario. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they're still absolutely stuffed. There's no, there's no way of going. Actually, this is all fine. We love Boris again, or we don't love Boris again. Something's got to give, and it's just the calculation that will now be. Especially, if you think someone like John Lamont, who resigns the PPS, it was only a junior role, but you know, there sort of could be some sort of career trajectory there. When Partickgate, you know, first emerged, Andrew Bowery resigned again, not a senior role, but there was probably some, you know, a, a path to a more senior position there. So they they must have taken the calculation that he's going to go. What's the outlook now? I
0: mean, I, Boris has got two key by-elections on June the 23rd, you know, as you said, in Wakefield, and and then Tiverton and Honiton in, in deepest, darkest Devon. Um, you know, the, the, these are seats that in 2019 were, you know, Wakefield is a classic Red Wall seat, Tiverton and Honiton, classic kind of rural Tory seat with... Um, you know, I think they've got a fifty-two percent majority over the Lib Dems who are their most likely challenges in that seat. Twenty odd thousand. Yeah, it's 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 a massive, massive majority. What happens if they lose one and what happens if they lose both?
2: And do you think there's any chance of them winning both? None whatsoever. Wakefield is absolutely gone. Um all the polling suggests that there was a um focus group yesterday where they were speaking to exclusively 2019 conservative voters in wakefield i think it was something like eight out of ten said they definitely wouldn't vote for him anymore couldn't vote conservative anymore because of the prime minister and i think two were like oh maybe we could but things would have to really change it'd be a complete rehaul of like the government and the way that he conducts himself so they're, they're not going to win wakefield um and some of the people said oh, they should have waited until after the by-elections the rebels to have this no confidence vote but i'm I'm not sure that's the case. By having this now, he is bruised and they've made it clear that he has to go. He survived and will have this whole you know year thing under the rules of the 922 committee, which means you cannot have another no-confidence vote for a year after one. But they will definitely lose Wakefield. That's gone. Tiverton is more of a long shot, but the Lib Dems are fairly confident. And I think they have the conditions right. Firstly, the Lib Dems have been taking seats they shouldn't have done in by-elections. Pretty well. I mean, you know, whisper it. But under uh, Sered Davey, quietly, they've been doing good. They've been doing good business. Um, you know, it's not all flair and glamour. And I don't think anyone ever goes, oh, you know, who I need to hear from right now. The Lib Dems. But locally, as campaigners and in by-elections, they are ferocious um, and they are a real threat. And if they take that, plus we've got the liaison committee, let's not forget that appearance. Um, he's done. I don't see. I don't see how you come back from that. If he wins one, I mean, if he, if he wins that one, he'll go. Okay, look, we won that. The other one, we can't have, can't be held accountable because of <laughs> who the predecessor was. But if they lose both, I don't know. I don't know how you then say he's still suitable for government because the only reason to keep him is there's not someone else and this this misplaced argument that he's an electoral force because all the polling shows he isn't. Any chance of a snap election? Well, I mean, one of the rumours doing the rounds is that he would threatened rebels and said that if he loses, he'd call a snap election, which uh, was very much I'm taking my ball and going home. Um, but yeah, I, I think Labour would relish that, right? I mean, I think that would be a really bold thing to do when your party aren't doing anything, right? Like, what's the, what's the point? You've got this huge majority. You can do anything you want. You've got, what, two years? to deliver radical change of your agenda. And that's the point of politics, right? The whole point, it's not just to win, though obviously that's an all of it that the Labour Party forgot. But winning means you can deliver policies and change people's lives. Why have an election now? If you've got that two years, do whatever you want with a majority so big you can, it would be so stupid. Nothing, like it's just a a silly little threat that's only going to scare his own MPs because they know they might lose onto him.
0: We we heard... Um, on the evening of the no confidence vote, from I think it was two rebels in in the form of Sir Roger Gale and Andrew Bridgen, who were both saying that the, the prime minister would be gone, you know, by the end of autumn or by the end of the year, or sorry, by party conference. I mean that 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 seems likely, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like he's going to hang on much longer than that. But it, but he is at the end of the day Boris Johnson, who you know needs to be kicking and screaming to do anything.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's not someone who uh, doesn't like, you know, the obvious thing would have been to get rid of Dominic Cummings when he got caught. He isn't, he prorogued parliament. He has historically got caught doing things he shouldn't have done, pretended otherwise and continued sacked by Michael Howard, sacked by the times. Um, You know, it, it's a pattern of behavior. This is not a new thing. You know, I said, I said this to you so many times. I mean, I think even on this podcast, multiple Tory MPs said to me, the fact he was a liar is priced in, but he wins. If that stops being the case, the Tory party will act. I think that stopped being the case, and it's now a matter of time until more of his colleagues accept that uh, and decide. But also, I really, I've just been talking basically on my own for a long time, and no one argued with me about Douglas Ross. Why are you all such Douglas Ross stands? Why do you all love him so much?
1: <laughs> I honestly strongly disagreed with you there, Alex. Um, I do think...
2: Come
1: on! <laughs> no, I just couldn't get in. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it does matter in the sense of his integrity uh, as a leader to go and flip flop from so many positions. I mean, he's he's flip flopped so many times. I think we we were talking previously about that uh, Sky News uh, interview that he did when he basically was asked, you know, will will you change your position after the war of Ukraine? And then he went oh yeah, maybe. And he was forced to say that. And it just it just shows, I know what you're saying in the sense of, oh, well, you know, morally and the right thing to do for his party stands true and all that. But at the same time, people want to find a leader who they can trust and know that their views don't change. it Because I don't think it is a very movable and changeable position. What he's done, you either think is acceptable or unacceptable, and you kick him out for the party on that basis. And I don't think that any information that we've received since Douglas Ross put that no confidence vote, or sorry, put that letter to the 1922 committee. I don't think much has changed. And I think actually much more things that have come out have been worse. And then he still went, oh no, but I'm going to support him through the war of Ukraine. And then he went back and went, oh no, I'm going to do this, no confidence vote. When he found that probably more people were going to be in support of that in Scotland with the other kind of MPs following suit. So I, I just think it is, it just shows weak leadership. And I don't think he can now go to the doors of people in Scotland and when an election comes up and ask them to back uh, his UK Tory leader because he clearly doesn't.
3: But I think he's I think he's, he's, I he's, gonna, think
2: he's taken that it won't be. Sorry,
3: go on. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think he, I don't disagree. I mean, I, I can basically, I think you made a good case for it. I think he was put in an impossible position. He would have been harshly criticised either way. He put, I mean, the decision put in the letter. I think was quite a bold one at the time. He gained a lot of respect for that, just in in terms of sticking his neck out. Um, And I think the problem is that he's now in quite a top. He's now in probably the most toxic situation in the sense that he put in that letter, flip flopped about it, eventually voted against Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson survives. Douglas Ross is there in a situation where, I mean, if you take a step back and look at the situation he's in, it is mental that you know they don't support the UK Tory leader. He actively says he should look at resigning. Uh, you've got people like Stephen Kerr, the, the chief whip in Holyrood, I think was on the BBC the other night, essentially saying that Douglas Ross would survive longer than Boris Johnson. And it's just quite crazy to imagine party figures talking about you know their two leaders in that way. Um, but I don't know. I agree with you, Alex, in the sense that I think his position did make... I could see the logic behind it. I don't think it was... I could see why he did it. Uh, and I could see why he changed his mind and kind of up the war in Ukraine in that way. Yeah, through circumstances, not entirely of his own making, they've just been stuck in the worst of all worlds now. And I think that the prospect of them campaigning in a general election is so hard to get your head around. And luckily for them, I don't think there's gonna be a, well, famous last words, I don't think it's gonna be a snap election anytime soon. So they've got a couple of years, probably, in which case, this situation will surely have resolved itself either way.
0: I'm going to go slightly different and say that his mistake was putting the letter in in the first place, which was done at a point where he appeared to think that the numbers were there for that confidence vote at that time. Right? So we had we had all that nonsense about the pork pie plot at the time, and and all of that. And I think as Scottish Conservative leader, you have to be pretty certain, if not a hundred and ten percent certain that the prime minister is on the verge of this confidence vote and that your letter might make the difference, you know, to put that in because of the political, you know, issues that, that, that would come down the line. Um, I think again, his second mistake was seeming to be bounced into the U-turn. I don't, I think if you, if you have a position of like principled, like objection, if you like, you know, which is what, you know, the no confidence letter, um, had, then it's it's particularly politically damaging to be bounced into you turning on that three or four days before, you know, or however long before it the Scottish Conservative Conference when the Prime Minister is, is due to attend. It looked like he had been bounced into it by number 10 rather than made a principled stance either way. And I think again, on Monday, you know, he took so long during that day to say that he was voting against the Prime Minister that again it looked like he had been bounced into this decision rather than it being what I actually do think is the case is that Douglas has very you know strong views on on you know how people should act in politics and I think he's actually quite a principled person. I think that does him damage within the party because I think he takes those decisions without maybe heeding advice from 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 very many people. But every step of this process, he looked like he was bounced into making a decision. And that is politically bad. It, sh- it-, it leads to questions on his judgment and who he's getting advice from.
2: He did call for Cummings to go um, at the time. I'm mm-hmm. not sure how if this shapes the panel's view uh, whatsoever. But he once was he once was quite rude about a lemon drizzle cake I made. Uh, so, <laughs> you
0: know. See, what I have heard yeah, that. you were there. He was you very worried about that lemon yeah. drizzle case. Yeah. You were there the day that lemon drizzle fell. <laughs> I think it's interesting though, because I I, th- I think he's, I wrote at the time when he put his, his, his first letter in, right? I wrote the time that he, it was a gamble and that he was gambling between his leadership and also the belief that Boris Johnson has some sort of moral core um, and that would realise that the time is right to go. And the problem is, is that what's proved to be the case is that Boris Johnson has no moral core. Can't you know, won't resign unless forced out. And Douglas Ross is appearing, you know, weak and, you know, insignificant in the grand old scheme of conservative politics. And I think that's damaging for him in the long run.
1: But don't you think the letter that he sent originally to the 1922 committee really kind of cemented his own stance as a Scottish Tory leader and probably garnered him a lot of respect from the public. I think we're missing that out a wee bit in this debate. And I think there were a lot of Scottish people who went, who weren't supportive of what Boris Johnson had done reparte, obviously. And, went good on him for, you know, standing his ground and making a point. I totally get the point of maybe calling it a wee bit too soon. But to the public, that looked like such a strong move from him. I don't want to speak for the whole of the (laughs) Scottish (laughs) public. (laughs) I think I know that quite a lot of people did feel like that Um, and quite a lot of people who actually not just Tory voters, not just Scottish Tory voters in Scotland, but voters from across the political spectrum in Scotland probably thought, oh, he's standing his own ground and he's he's coming out against this and he's got a bit of integrity. Then he went on to undermine that integrity
3: for a lot I think, like, I I don't disagree with that, but I also don't think that it's really of that much value to them because those people would have thought good on Douglas Ross standing up to Boris Johnson, but I doubt those people would have voted for the Tories in the back of that.
1: Well, what about Scottish Tories? But
3: that's what I mean. I don't think it would have got the many votes as such. They would have got a measure of respect in, in the sense that he's stuck his neck in the line, which I do think was of value but I don't think it would have attracted votes I just think people would have I don't know I just I just wonder how much value that really has
0: absolutely well if you've got any thoughts at home do let us know on twitter at the scotsman Um Alex thank you very much I know you're now going to zoom off and you know have some fun and do do your own job for a bit.
2: This is this is part of my job. I know I know it feels like it's fun, but I'm I have to turn this on. I do not enjoy this. It's um it's, it's an arduous <laughs> task for me. Right, thank you very much, Alex. See you Bye. later. Bye. So thank you to Alex for joining us and talking us
0: to talking us through even the vote of no confidence on Monday. Alistair, I'm now gonna to turn to you. The big political story in recent weeks in Scotland has been ScotRail and the dispute pay dispute between train drivers and the ASLEF union. Um, with ScotRail, overpay, take us through what's happened. There was a bit of a breakthrough yesterday in particular.
3: Yeah, so we've obviously had this situation for a while now. People are used to this reduced timetable in ScotRail causing quite a lot of anxiety, quite a lot of problems for people. Um, I think caused problems on Wednesday with the Scotland game. Basically people were told they couldn't get trains afterwards. Uh, major kind of concerns from business leaders in terms of the nighttime economy. Uh, essentially just a lot of unhappiness about it. And then as you say, what looks like very much like a breakthrough, a pay deal with ScotRail and the train drivers union Aslef, five percent pay deal after kind of quite fraught negotiations sometimes I think. Um they rejected I think it's two previous pay offers. It looks like good news on that front. I don't know how long it's a suggestion that it could take a couple of weeks to get back to a normal timetable. But one of the other things in the back of this that I think is interesting is that we've seen already other unions kind of coming out and pointing to their own situations. Uh, unions like the GMB, uh, who have their own pay disputes, they've got pay offers themselves that they've rejected, and will probably look at this pay deal, this 5% pay offer, and want to at least match it. You know, if, if if 5% is what train drivers have been offered in the back of this dispute, there'll be a lot of other you know, teachers, council workers, who will look at that and basically view it as a baseline now, I think. And that could cause problems over this summer. We've already had kind of stories about a summer of strike, strikes you know kind of unhappiness over uh, pay offers not matching inflation inflation is obviously soaring um and a lot of these pay offers come in well below that uh i think the teachers one i think was around two percent and the eis the kind of biggest teaching union has been pushing for a 10 percent pay deal so you can see that massive gap between what they want and what they've been offered uh, and i think yeah it's gonna it's gonna create a tricky situation uh, and i think the Scottish government uh we know their budget is already tight They had their resource spending review um, a few days ago that had, you know, basically outlined what are essentially real terms cuts to a lot of public services, key things like councils, the police, the justice system. Um, And essentially those cuts were adding up to over a billion pounds in the coming years. So, yeah, things were already looking grim. And obviously this money has to come from somewhere. It will be quite a, potentially quite a, a fraught summer.
0: Yeah, Kate Forbes said, I think in a in an appearance in front of committee on Tuesday that you know there's no very difficult to impossible for the government to inflation-proof pay rises for for public sector. This obviously, as you, as you kind of mentioned, this comes in a in a context of a you know 1.1 billion pounds worth of cuts to the public sector in general, um, you know, excluding health. Um, you know, it comes along alongside a commitment to drop the public sector workforce by 2026-27 to pre-pandemic levels, which is about 30,000 fewer fewer workers, although Forbes is king not to put a number on it, while also freezing the public sector wage bill. Um, so that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, people won't get pay rises, but it does mean that hopefully they'll be offset by people leaving the workforce, or alternatively, people take pay cuts over the next four years i mean it's, it's it's a it's an impossible situation for the government really to be in where they're going to have to balance public spending and demands on their you know resource financing you know year on year while also dealing with with the unions who are quite rightly demanding more money
3: yeah it's an extremely difficult situation and like you say i think one of the one of the areas that's facing cuts is councils local authorities where a lot of this unhappiness uh, a lot of these workers are unhappy are employed by local authorities so yeah I think money is going to be incredibly tight Uh, you can understand I'm not saying uh, in the sense that I think unions are totally understand why they're pushing for bigger pay offers we've got inflation you know almost reaching 10% Uh, these pay deals are well below that so workers are facing a real terms cut that's just a fact Um, and you can understand from a union's point of view why they'd be pushing to address that we've got a cost of living crisis people struggling with food bills with fuel costs we've got you know, soaring fuel costs at the moment. I think the the price of filling up an average family car has reached £100 for the first time. And so people are really struggling. And there's, you know, a lot of concern about the months ahead, energy costs rising in October again. Um, And I think from a trade union's point of view, they'll be pushing for, you know, pay deals that take that into account and reflect that reality. But at the same time, obviously the, the government is also struggling for cash. So yeah, I just, it's, it's, as I say it's going to be fraught I'm not sure I'm not sure how how this summer is gonna to, gonna to work out.
0: Hannah you you were angry I think on Tuesday or Wednesday after Jenny Gilruth suggested that it would be fine for people just to walk home after the the Scotland match I mean the, these 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 strikes and the, the, this industrial action has real impact day to day on people and workers and you know everyone.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm always angry, Connor, to be frank. But I was particularly angry on Wednesday when Jenny Gilruth was speaking. Uh, I think it was taking an urgent question from the Tories who were basically saying, are there going to be any urgent provisions uh, for people coming home from the game at Hamden? Uh, Where I think, no, I'm not very good with football, but I think it was Armenia, and Scotland in the Nations League, I've impressed myself, playing there. And um, yeah, so and and the the annoying thing was the ScotRail announced that day that the trains would stop essentially before the final whistle was blown. So people had no means of getting back, as we all know uh, that this this was happening this week. Um, So basically Jenny Gilworth updated people saying that there will be no real replacement after that. And as an example, well, she didn't even, she didn't, she didn't allude to it, but she said it in her statement as she was announcing these. Um, the fact that there would be no real replacement. She pointed to the fact, well, people prefer to walk home. And I think she used the example of people at the Ukraine game and said, well, I think 7,500 people took the train there and then only 2,500 took the train back. So that was kind of like alluding to the fact that, oh, well, People, you know, people can make their way back, which is so dangerous, I think, to kind of say that in a statement announcing that you're not going to have any rule replacement uh, because it's a matter of safety. It's a matter of accessibility to have these sorts of transport links available. I mean, I was even talking to a few football fans who I know um, after I I made that post um, because I I tweeted about it, uh, showing my anger. And a few of them said, well, we hardly know anywhere that doesn't really have an accessible transport link, you know, because they've been to several cities where they watch football and then they go back on public transport. They've never really had that sort of situation where they don't have that transport link. So it's a huge blow for them. And these were, by the way, men that I was speaking to about this. So it's not just I was pointing at it from a women's safety issue, uh, but a few Other people also pointed to the fact of accessibility for older people, for people with disabilities. Having these active transport links are so important for including people as well. So accessibility, I have probably a stigma against football because I see it as a very male dominated sport. I I mean, I'm not lying when I say that. So I think it's things like that. And it's that sort of excluding people who have these safety concerns who tend to be women would feel less included from these sorts of um, matches and these sort of, yeah, public gatherings. And I just think for a transport minister to say that, who, you know, I think a lot of people had real hopes for because she was talking about making transport more accessible and inclusive for women, particularly watching out and inc- ensuring that their safety was um Thought about in their uh, daily travel. For her to say something like that during that was was incredibly concerning for so many people, Uh, not just women, but everyone. I think let's talk about that because I think it's it's
0: interesting that the difficulty here, or the the, maybe that that if we look ahead for the next six months, you know, honestly, you mentioned summer of strikes. Um, Hannah, you're talking about you know Jenny Gilruth coming off badly from the from the Scotrail dispute. You know, who do we think is going to come out at the end of this year, the end of this summer in particular, when when inflation is going to hit hit its heights, at least according to forecasts? Who do we think is going to come out of this worse? Do we think it's going to be the unions for causing the disruption, which they are well within their rights to do? Do we think it's going to be, you know, the the government in in kind of general terms? Or do we think it's going to be specific ministers?
3: Uh, I think it'll entirely depend on who you ask. So, I mean, specific ministers, I think Jenny Gilroof has a very difficult brief as transport minister. It's a brief that has famously uh, been almost a poison chalice for other people. It's broke people in the past, you know, in the political sense. People have really struggled with it. It's a difficult brief. And I think um scorial crisis seems like it might be abating in that sense. But certainly she came under criticism over the way that the negotiations with the union were working. There were people like the Tories, you know, demanding more from her. Um, some of the some of the criticisms from the union itself from Aslef very critical of the way the government was initially going about in the negotiations. So she might struggle in terms of if 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 this doesn't improve, if further things happen. We've obviously got RMT strikes, uh, kind of UK wide, coming up as well. Um, I think that's a dispute. I might be wrong. I think it's a dispute with Network Rail. Um, so it's it's an ongoing issue. So I think the government will get criticism for some quarters, but obviously there are um, more. You know, traditionally right wing elements who are never that sympathetic to unions in the first place. Um, I think you can see that with some of the media coverage, kind of references to union barons and all that kind of thing. Um, and, and we've seen that, you know, historically in the past as well. So these things can sometimes get quite messy if they're quite prolonged. Uh, particularly, you look at some of the strikes that could be coming up with kind of key workers, you know, cleansing staff and councils or uh, education support workers and people who are actually key to the running of institutions. And have, uh, families and your average person in the street starts to really notice a difference. Things things could quickly get quite fraught.
1: Yeah, and I think with Jenny Go Ruth as well, I, I do think there's a lot of people who will have great sympathy for her coming into that brief. Whilst you know ScotRail has been under, well, well as it has been made under government control, you know everyone has sympathies with the sense that that was always going to be a tough. A tough few years and a tough starting point for her to kind of yeah take over well at, in that role whilst that was happening um but i think when you look at her from a ministerial point of view when you look at her as an smp msp and you you compare her to other policies that perhaps other parties are introducing for example the greens are very strong on looking at town planning um, and looking at more public transport routes. I think they did a, I think I mentioned that they had done a public transport pilot, free public transport pilot in Glasgow quite recently. I think people might be looking as all this is happening with the train chaos, they people might be tempted, the general public might be tempted to look at other parties and go, oh, well, these guys have a really good and worthwhile and viable and accessible understanding and policies around transport. So coming up against kind of competitors like that who are really focusing on transport, I think, will be a a real challenge for Gerry Gilruth. And I think with the SNP and the Greens' agreement, um, it should be incredibly important to kind of look towards their partners within that.
0: Let's let's move on a bit and talk about you know independence because it's 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 uh, we only have I think three weeks left of um, Holyrood until the summer recess, which lasts until basically essentially autumn, and we are running out of time to hear and see from the Scottish government their plans for an independence referendum next year. Yesterday there was uh, you know news. Of a sort about a prospectus being being you know published next week or in the coming weeks. Part of a prospectus, a scene setter. I believe the phrase was from from the first minister spokesperson. We should see a referendum bill by the end of before summer. I guess, Alistair, surely
3: not necessarily. Uh, so I think, as you said. I think the First Minister's spokesman was talking about this a little bit the other day, and I think he refused to confirm that it has happened before recess, but just said it would happen this year. So there has been some speculation that they could wait until after summer and publish it maybe around the time of the SNP conference uh, as a kind of, you know, big moment for their activists, for the party supporters, and then try and push it through Parliament after that. But you're right that, you know, we would have thought previously that we would see it before summer recess at the end of this month, because... Timescales, if they want to hold a referendum before the end of 2023, are just incredibly tight now. And they'd be unbelievably tight if they wait until after summer. But that might be the route they go down. If primarily what they're after is a showdown with the UK government as opposed to any real intention of having a referendum next year, which is what a lot of people suspect, just given the timelines and given the fact the UK government is probably going to say no. Um, so if they push it through and it gets challenged by the UK government and we go to a court case and it leads to a big standoff that might be what they're going for instead, rather than actually any hope of it genuinely taking place. Um, but as you said, we've got, I think, the first of a series of documents that are setting out the new kind of SNP vision for independence during the coming weeks, potentially next week, uh, described as a scene setter, which sounds incredibly vague. To be honest, it sounds like a kind of introductory document that might not have that much in it. But we are told it will include some some kind of policy proposals, although obviously that's a very loose idea, you could argue that just floating the idea of independence itself is a policy proposal. Um, So I'm not sure we'll get much detail on that initial document. But then after that, there is expected to be a series of documents looking at different issues, things like currency, things like trade, the border, all those kind of things that, you know, there's loads and loads of questions, unanswered questions over. So instead of a white paper, like they produced ahead of the 2014 referendum, we're going to get these different papers looking at different issues. But yeah, that should kick off very soon. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I
0: think, you know, we're, we're, we've been at the point now where we've been circling, you know, um, above the independence referendum landing for, for a long time, you know, waiting for something, cro- you know, concrete from the government. And I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, the referendum bill itself, but, you know, in reality, we've been discussing independence, you know, as a country with the 2014 prospectus for independence you know slight minor changes every here and there from from the SNP you know when when it's suited and when conferences has wanted to make those minor changes but you know it's time for answers isn't it I mean the Scottish public deserve some sort of understanding of 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 what the hell they're going to be voting for if there is a referendum next year
1: oh yeah I mean totally uh, that's that's the thing I, I mean you can't have your whole party main policy to push independence and to get that and and not have answers to that. I mean, I was at that briefing with the First Minister's spokesperson. um, And honestly, the amount of questions that were just Getting left unanswered about what was happening, what was gonna what was gonna come out of the independence proposals? Like it was, people were kind of joking at the end of it. Journalists were joking and saying, "Oh, is it gonna be like a book? And can we expect like sequels to it?" Like, and no answers were being given. And I think so many people were just, yeah, there was a there was a big frustration in the room because having. Like I said, having this as your main party policy, yet having so many questions left unanswered around when we can expect it, not even being able to back up some of the First Minister's statements on it uh, was also something very interesting. It's just, you know, I think it will take people by surprise a lot and, and make them reconsider, oh gosh, is this the party for independence Um, or are they having other things kind of prioritised in this agenda and it might make or break people's voting if this is their sole purpose for voting SNP.
0: What do you think, Alistair?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it is long past time for answers. I mean, I can see why they're not doing it to some degree because like the sooner you put these documents out there, the more time people have to pick over them, the more time opposition parties have to criticise them, the more time, you know, experts and in different institutions have have to pick over them and to see the holes and to point out all the awkward things that the SNP maybe don't want to talk about. I think particularly with issues around the border between Scotland and England, it's such a difficult issue, potentially incredibly damaging for the SNP's case just because it throws up all sorts of different things. If they want to rejoin the EU uh, and England remains outside of it, it would just be, yeah, incredibly difficult. It throws up all, all sorts of different problems. Um, it's not to say that it's unanswerable, but they do have to come up with these answers. And when they do, they will be criticised for them just inevitably. So I can see why they're not doing it in that regard. But I think it just adds into this whole atmosphere that the idea there's going to be a referendum next year just seems increasingly farcical in the sense that, you know, I don't know many people really in Scottish politics, you know, people publicly say there will be, but when you speak to activists or whatever privately, I don't know many people who genuinely think that it's a real possibility that it's actually going to happen. It's, it's more usual that people would say, you know, within this parliamentary term or something like that. Um, although I do also get the argument from the SNP's point of view that um, I actually thought when this got brought up at a committee the other day in Holyrood uh, with the, con- the Constitution Secretary Angus Robertson and the Finance Secretary Kate Forbes basically asked about whether they think there'll be a referendum next year by the Scottish Tory MSP Donald Cameron, And Kate Ford's answer I thought was quite good. She basically just said, you know, that's the intention. That's what we're working towards, which is the SNP's position. And that's fair enough. That is their intention. They do want a referendum next year and they will push the UK government for that. I think Angus Robertson's answer, which was, yes, there will be, was a bit more, I mean, maybe disingenuous is the wrong word, but it just seemed, you know, they can't guarantee that. And I don't think. I think it's hard to see a route to a referendum without the UK government playing ball in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, the debate is completely stalled at the moment. I think that's one of the problems, and we need to, it needs to be moved on in some way. Yeah, maybe these documents will do that.
0: To, to, to borrow a phrase, I believe, from a different political commentator, we are living in a stagnation nation um, when it comes to independence. But thank you very much, both of you for joining us. And thank you to Alex earlier as well for taking us through the uh, vote to no confidence in Boris Johnson. I'm away next week. So you at home will be left with these three people to, to chat through all of what happens when I'm drinking whiskey on the Isle of Jura. But Thank you very much, uh, both of you, again. And thank you very much at home for listening. Bye-bye. The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman.